According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in, uh, tell you what, this time let's go to the Gospel of John, John chapter 18. We're returning to episode 25, the arrest of our Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane, an event which is uh, recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're dealing with um, Peter's sword and his attempt to uh, to rescue Jesus or to hinder Jesus from being arrested. Ultimately, what he's trying to do is trying to hinder the plan of God from being achieved. He's trying to hinder Scripture from being fulfilled. And that's what he's going to get rebuked with when the Lord said, What are you doing? How is it then that the Scripture shall be fulfilled? Peter, if you're successful, I'm not. <laughs> All right? And it's, uh, it's uh, really uh, an important principle that we ought to embrace in our own prayer life when we disagree with the will of God for what it is he's assigned us to do. Say, so, well, wait a minute. He assigned, he assigned this to us. It's his will. It's his purpose. It's his plan. Do I want to thwart his plan? What am I doing? Just because I don't like it or just because it's unpleasant doesn't change the reality that God assigned it to me and it's, it's for my good. It's for the glory of Jesus Christ. So this is where we are uh, in the middle of point five, Peter's sword. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer and dedicate our thinking to his glory. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your truth. We thank You for the truth of Your Word and Your faithfulness, Father, through the Spirit of truth to open the eyes of our understanding. Father, we thank You that we have the opportunity this day, the grace provision to be here. We ask that You would redeem this time for the glory of Your Son. We ask that You would instruct us, uh, impress upon us not only the, the knowledge, Father, but the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, uh, equip us. To, uh, to be more Christ-like day by day, Father, in the accomplishment of Your plan. I thank You in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right. Point five is Peter's sword for those that are following along. When I say, if you're following along in the outline, what do I mean by that? I mean that you have your pen and your paper and your notes and you are writing them down, following along in the outline. I don't uh, distribute published notes ahead of time. When, uh, when a module is complete, we can give you some notes after the fact, but oftentimes in the process of teaching, I'm going to find any number of typos and errors and other problems, and you have a chance to fix those during the, uh, the teaching of the class. All right, Peter's sword. First of all, this is not a passage that defends pacifism, because uh, the Lord had said that two swords are sufficient, and so it is not wrong to carry a sword, uh, they said in the upper room, look, Lord, here are two swords. And uh, he said, it is sufficient. Prior to that, he said, if you don't have a sword, then sell your coat and buy a sword. He said, there's a priority in view and a sword outranks comfort related to sell your coat and buy a sword. And so in your prioritizing, um, there is a place for personal self-defense. Now, he doesn't say buy 12 swords. There's 12 of you. You need one sword each. 
He doesn't say uh, to buy swords and, and armament and uh, helmets and, and shields and, and uh, let's engage in combat against the Roman Empire. It's not what he says. But he does say that two swords is sufficient, that you have the capability to defend, two can defend eleven, uh, if, uh, for just personal self-defense reasons. Um, they are sufficient for personal self-defense. The whole doctrine of sufficiency, I think, is a neat study to look at the vocabulary that Scripture has for sufficient. Uh, it's remarkable because uh, our fallen nature never finds anything sufficient. <laughs> All right, we always want more, and that's the nature of this fallen world. Uh, they were sufficient for personal self-defense in difficult days, but not intended for armed insurrection against the governing authorities and not intended to enforce matters of faith. We don't use the sword to force everybody to conform to our theology. We don't use the sword to enforce our uh, church supremacy over heretic churches. Okay? And this was the history of uh, all kinds of Roman, uh, uh, you know, the Roman church and many Reformation churches and, all, and many, uh, they, they use the power of the sword, the power of government to enforce their uh, belief. This is why the founding fathers of this country said, no, we uh, will not use the power of government to enforce a uh, denominational belief in the, uh, the First Amendment of our Constitution. All right, now, secondly to this, taking the sword is not living by the sword. This gets misquoted so often. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Okay, as if somehow living by the sword means that you know this is your way of life, this is your living, this is your uh, this is your uh, livelihood. Okay, the Bible has plenty of terms to describe your livelihood, and none of them are used here. All right, uh, this is not a a, a ban against uh, a way of life such as uh, to be a soldier. In fact, if the Lord wanted to ban all military service, he very easily could have said so. John the Baptist very easily could have said so. There was a soldier that came to John the Baptist and said, what should I do? And he said, stop using your military position to extort funds. Quit using your military position uh, to inflict unlawful violence and to, uh, to plunder. Uh, be content with your wages. Don't use your military position or your police function to enrich yourself. Uh, but he never does say, your line of work is immoral, get out of it. You know, quit being a soldier and become a, a tree hugger or something, you know. He doesn't do any of that. There's no ban against the use of force. There's no ban against law enforcement officers or a military career or anything of the sort. And, besides which, all the rest of that is beside the point because this verse does not say all those who live by the sword as if it's an injunction against particular lifestyles or uh, career paths, as it were. It is taking the sword. And taking the sword inappropriately, taking the sword wrongly, taking the sword violently, taking the sword is a use of take that oftentimes is very common in Scripture, like taking a... A woman in, in, a, in a vile, you know, rape application or taking uh, something by force, taking something that doesn't belong to you, taking in a, in a thievery sense, could apply to stealing, could apply to rape, could apply to murder, could apply to a lot of things. Taking the sword if it doesn't belong to you. Because who does the sword belong to? The sword belongs to government. That's right. Uh, civil authority in Romans 13, it does not, it does not bear the sword for nothing. It's the, that's who owns the sword. It's been entrusted to, for the, for the application of uh, capital punishment, it belongs to the state. See, 
by the way, um, the role of government is to, is to be the avenger on, on the Lord's behalf, uh, uh, to avenge murder, to avenge wrongdoing, to inflict justice according to the standards of righteousness and law. It's not the role of government to keep everybody safe. Okay? That's your business. You keep you safe. You keep your family safe. You keep your wife safe. You keep your children safe. That's your business. All right? But to, to maintain justice in the society, that's government's business, biblically speaking. All right, so taking the sword inappropriately is the usurpation of civil authority. If you want more on that, we dealt with that last week. Thirdly, 10,000 angels sells the Lord short. A very famous song called 10,000 Angels, gospel song. Um, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. Okay? He actually could have called 72,000 angels and more than, more than 12 legions of angels. Angels can be tasked for human protection and warfare, but Jesus knows that would not be the Father's will for this night. And actually, we did not look at those verses. So let's, uh, I know I said John 18, my fault. Uh, got ahead of myself there. We'll be in John 18 shortly. Let's go ahead and go to 2 Kings chapter 6. Let's review these Old Testament passages. And let's consider, you know, what was Jesus really saying when he said he could have called? Do you think that I could not? Means that I could, and I thought about it. <laughs> and what have you thought about? Okay, Second Kings chapter 6. Angels can be tasked for human protection in warfare. And it's good to have a uh, spiritual view of things and not just be trapped by the human view of things. Starting in 2 Kings 6 and verse 17. And there's a context here that precedes this. But um, the king of Aram, going back to verse 8, the king of Aram was warring against Israel, and he counseled with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And so they make plans for how you, uh, you know, position your troops and how, uh, where they sleep for the night and where they launch from in their day attacks and different things like that. And then the man of God sent word to the king of Israel saying, Beware that you do not pass this place for the Arameans are coming down there. So the best uh, G2 network you could possibly have for your uh, you know, military intelligence network you could have is having a prophet of the Lord God <laughs> who knows where your enemy troop layout is going to be. And so the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him, and so that he guarded himself there more than once or twice. This was happening consistently. Every time the Arameans would reposition their troops, um, God would send a prophetic message to the prophet, and they would be able to alert the king. Okay? And you might imagine this gives you a tremendous advantage in, uh, in warfare. So the heart of the king of Aram was enraged over this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you tell me which of us is for the king of Israel? Which one of you is the spy? Which one of you is the rat? And how are you getting messages to the king of Israel? He's, he's a step ahead of us every, every time. And one of his servants said, No, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Okay? Uh-oh. All right. So... Clearly then, if you're going to win in this warfare, you've got to knock out the, the prophet. Right? You've got to remove his, his uh, intelligence capability and his eyes and ears. and You've got to remove that uh, until, you know, while that's in place, you're never going to, you're never going to have the, the tactical advantage on the battlefield. All right? It's almost like uh, 
uh, Ahab and Jezebel, you know, trying to hunt down Elijah, you know, and every time they thought they had him trapped, he'd be somewhere else. You know, how do you how do you ambush a prophet when the Lord's tipping him off every day on when the when the arrest is coming? So I think that's remarkable because Jesus was a prophet who got tipped off. He knew when the arrest was coming and he made sure that he was there to be arrested. Right place at the right time. All right, so he said, go and see where he is that I may send and take him. And it was told to him saying, behold, he is in Dothan. And so he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And so a change of tactics. Instead of attacking the king and instead of attacking, attacking the armies of the king, he goes and he attacks the location where this prophet is located. And uh, now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out. Now it's interesting whether this is truly, uh, you know, we know a couple of his servants' names, but he's not named here. Um, is this Gehazi or who, who might this be? Doesn't matter. When the attendant of the man of God had risen early. And what I like the fact is that this language is used this way because, remember, Joshua was the attendant of Moses from his youth. Remember, the attendant has an opportunity to learn to be trained during his attendant capacity, and then a, a generation will come when you're not the attendant anymore. Now you're in, the, in charge of things, and now you have an attendant, and you, you train him kind of a thing. And you've got to learn these lessons when you're in training so that uh, you can make application when you're in ministry. So when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And a servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So bad news. When the ambush comes at night, when you wake up and find you're under siege, then you're under siege. You're surrounded. No in, no out. You're in a bad circumstance. What shall we do? And he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now his encouragement reflects a spiritual viewpoint. That he's not just looking at the externals, he's looking at the internals, and he needs to open his servant's eyes so that he will share that same viewpoint. And that's the whole impact of verse 17. Okay, All this is introduction leading to verse 17. So Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All right. So there are angels that are assigned, that are tasked, with human protection in warfare. Why Why was this angel division assigned to guard Dothan? Well, because Elisha was there. <laughs> All right. This is a detachment that's sent to, to different places where the, where the prophets were traveling. Okay. Seems to me. And, uh, and they had capacity to observe that. And on request here, he makes request of the Lord that the servant here, the attendant, will have capacity to observe that. And it's well worth saying that you and I ought to have similar mindset, given that we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against principalities. All right, that's our struggle. That's our combat. You know, Israel didn't have the combat we have. Israel relied upon angelic protection on their behalf. But we actively engage. So should our eyes be open as well? Our spiritual eyes open? All right. So the, uh, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Strike those people with blindness, I pray. So he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. So you've got angels protecting you, and then the prophet can just strike them all blind by praying to the Lord. And now you've got a prophet, and you've got a blind army. 
So Elisha says, you see, it's a neat story because the servant has his eyes open and the army has their eyes shut. Okay. Spiritual eyes and earthly eyes. So Elisha said to them, this is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he brought them to Samaria. And, uh, you know, they follow this blind army, follows them to Samaria. And then when they come to Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. Behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. In the midst of. And the king of Israel, when he saw them, said to Elisha, My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? So, I mean, they're not, they're not besieging Samaria. They're in the midst of Samaria. Now they're surrounded by the army of Israel. And here's the king of Israel. Who could have them all killed? Anyway. He said, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. When they had eaten and drunk, he set them away and they went to their master. And the marauding bands of Arameans did not come again to the land of Israel. So they had a lesson to learn. And it's interesting how they learned that lesson. You know, if they had executed them all, you think there might have been another band along the way? <laughs> Here comes the next one. Here comes the next one. Okay. You can heap it, you can heap coals on the head of your enemy in this. Anyway, so long as the king is listening to the prophet, so long as the prophet is listening to the Lord, they're protected. They're in good shape. And uh, they've got an opportunity here to have a testimony to the Arameans, and they make use of that testimony. All right. Uh, another example of this, where angels are tasked for human protection, comes in chapter 19 and verse 35. Second Kings 19. And we advance several years. There is no more Samaria. Northern kingdom has been swept away. The southern kingdom's afraid of the same thing. They're afraid that uh, the Assyrians are going to sweep them away. But uh, again, you've got a king, and you've got a king that listens to a prophet. This time, the king is Hezekiah, and the prophet is uh, Isaiah. And so, um, anyway, there's a, there's a long context for this as well. But we head down to the gist of this. It says, uh, verse 32, Therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. Uh, by the way that he came, the same he will return, and he shall not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. Okay? And he does. But it's not because they deserved it, not because they earned it. It's for his name's sake, for David's name's sake. Then it happened that night that the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men rose early in the morning, behold, all of them were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And... Uh, so forth. It came about as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adramalek, and he's going to get assassinated here because of the shame and disgrace of the, uh, of the defeat. Um, they killed him with a sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and Esarhaddon, his son, became king in his place. So there's the end of Sennacherib and the beginning of the reign of Esarhaddon. All right, so... Um, if one angel can kill 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, <laughs> what do you think 72,000 angels can do? Right. 
You know, now admittedly, this is the angel of the Lord. This is Jesus Christ himself, God the Son. And so the 72,000 that Jesus could have called upon were not each as mighty as the one here. But nevertheless, I think it's still a valid proportion to, to recognize. Um, also, I would encourage you to consider uh, the message that Titus gave us, Titus Kennedy when he was here, um, that 185,000 is an expression that may represent 185 chieftains, as it were, the mighty men that lead the divisions. Um, that it may not have been every single soldier that was killed, it was only the command structure. It was the 185 officers, the 185 chiefs. And so what then ended up with, Sennacherib was left with infantry foot soldiers and no chiefs, no leadership, organizational structure. And um, that Sennacherib himself had to lead that defeat back. In any event, I think that's actually a likely rendering. And... uh, I'm going to have to ponder that more. But when Titus taught it, it made a lot of sense to me. Not so much here, although it does make sense here, but also in the uh, enumerations of the uh, tribes of, of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And uh, when they came out of Egypt, that they were a much smaller number than the millions that are usually thought of if they had 600,000 armed men for battle. If they had 600,000 armed men for battle, plus women and civilians and elderly and hangers-on and servants and all of that, um, they would not have been facing seven nations greater, each one of them greater and mightier than themselves and uh, in different aspects there. So uh, anyway, if you're not familiar with that, I uh, would encourage you to uh, look into that. All right, so there's the 10,000 angels. And uh, could he have called those? Yes. But it would not have been the Father's will. It would have been a, an improper request. Jesus knows that would not be the Father's will for this night. And uh, he makes that uh, very clear to Peter when he says, how then will the scriptures be fulfilled? And uh, you, you can't ask for something that's in violation of the will of God. He just had his own victory of not my will, but thine be done. And, uh, and then he watches Peter grab a sword and insist upon not thy will, but mine be done. Right. And uh, that's why the Lord has to rebuke him here in this. All right. Now we get to point D and we take a look at John chapter 18. And uh, the high priest's slave, well, that's a bad point. The high priest's slave, Malchus. Most of point D is missing there, my apologies. The high priest's slave, Malchus. I'll have this fixed by next Wednesday. Malchus was a common name among the Arabs. So what you don't see on the slide, it says, point D, the high priest slave Malchus, M-A-L-C-H-U-S, Malchus, John 18.10. The high priest slave Malchus, John 18.10. Malchus was a common name among the Nabataean Arabs. If you want to call him Malchus, yeah, that's not so good, Mal- Malchus, and have a more of a guttural sound, that might be better. Uh, think of it as coming from Maluk rather than from Melek. Coming from Maluk rather than coming from Melek. problem with coming from Melek is that's not as common a name for a slave. And it kind of, Melek means king. And to have a slave named king is not 
common, other than maybe a slave that's owned by the king, perhaps. But this is a slave that's owned by the high priest, and it's much better to take it as uh, the etymology of, of uh, the name coming from Maluk rather than Melek. There is a note here by Edersheim we can take a look at. Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. All right. I don't know how much of this I want to read this morning either. He talks about the whom do you seek and then the I am statements. All right, the words of Christ about those that were with him seem to have recalled the leaders of the guard to full consciousness, perhaps awakened in them uh, fears of a possible rising at the incitement of his adherents. Accordingly, it is here that we insert the notice of St. Matthew and of St. Mark that they laid hands on Jesus and took him. Then it was that Peter, seeing uh, what was coming, drew the sword which he carried and putting the question to Jesus, but without awaiting his answer, struck at Malchus, the servant of the high priest, perhaps the Jewish leader of the band, cutting off his ear. All right, so this is how uh, Edersheim records this narrative. Um, but Jesus immediately restrained all such violence and rebuked all self-vindication by outward violence. The taking of the sword that had not been received. The taking of the sword that had not been received. Remember, that's the use of lambana, where you take something that has not been given. Okay? It's one thing to receive something that has been given. It's something else to take something that has not been received or has been given. Nay, with it all merely outward zeal, pointing to the fact how easily he might, as against this cohort, have commanded angelic legions. He had, in wrestling agony, received from his father that cup to drink, and the scriptures must be, must in that wise be fulfilled. And so saying, he touched the ear of Malchus and healed him. All right, so now we have a note here related to Malchus, the servant. And in this note, see why it's important you read footnotes? <laughs> All right. So I hate footnotes. I don't have enough time to read the main text itself. You want me to read the text and the footnotes? All right, the name Malchus, which occurs also in Josephus, in his antiquities, in his wars, different references there, must not be derived, as is generally done, uh, from Melech, a king. His Hebrew equivalent, apparently, is Maluch, counselor, a name which occurs both in the Old Testament and in the Septuagint. And he gives you the examples of 1 Chronicles 6.44, Nehemiah 10.4, and etc. Uh, and as a later Jewish name in the Talmud, both uh, Frankel and Freudenthal maintained that it was not a Jewish name, while it was common among uh, Syrians, Phoenicians, Arabians, and Samaritans. The suggestion, therefore, lies near that Malchus was either a Syrian or a Phoenician by birth. And that's probably the case. The idea that the Jewish high priest would have a Jewish slave named after the Jewish Hebrew word for king, Melech, is kind of nonsensical when it comes down to it. But if he has a, a Phoenician slave or a Nabataean Arab slave, then that would, that, would, uh, that would make more sense. In any event. All right, there's more, but uh, we'll let that go. If you want to read uh, Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, I encourage you. It's an excellent work. In fact, there's Grace Notes history courses that are based on Life and Time of Jesus the Messiah. All right. Now, what do we know about this Malik? Uh, very little, other than the fact that when we glance down later in the chapter, we find that he has a family member who's also a slave of the high priest. 
He has a family member who's also a slave of the high priest. And this is part of the struggle here where uh, Peter keeps running into people that know him. Um, and so, uh, let's see. Well, verse 25. Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And then one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, <laughs> said, did I not see you in the garden with him? <laughs> and Peter then denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. So um, multiple family members, all slaves to the, uh, to the high priest. All right, well, we'll deal with that when we get to the trials before... Annas. Finally then, the healing. I'm sorry that point D didn't get. That's my fault. That was only half the point. I'll fix that by next week. Point E then, the healing of Malchus is Jesus' final miracle before the cross. The healing of Malchus is Jesus' final miracle before the cross. Luke 22:51. he touched the ear and healed the ear. Uh, Matthew and Mark don't record the healing of the ear, but, uh, but Luke does. The healing of Malchus is Jesus' final miracle before the cross. By the way, this is so specific and these names are so precise and this gives us such an amazing apologetic see, uh, in the fact that as the New Testament was being written during the lifetime of those who witnessed all these events, uh, if any of this was fraudulent, if any of this was inaccurate, then the haters and the critics and, and so forth could have immediately just demonstrated, look, the high priest never had a slave named Malchus. This never happened. All right? But the people that witnessed these things were still alive, many of which are still alive until now. Some are asleep, Paul said. You know, the Lord appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. Some, many of which are still alive, just as you yourselves know. Okay? And so the specificity here is remarkable. And uh, we'll see more of that as we find, uh, as we just, uh, Describe the relationship between Caiaphas and Annas, and these that he's naming by name. There, there could be no doubt as to the historicity of, uh, of the gospel record or the historicity of the book of Acts. Okay? And even when skeptics have tried to mock it, even when skeptics have done their best to show that, oh, there was no census during the reign of Quirinius, and they think they've, got, they've, they've proven Luke wrong. Every time they think they've proven Luke wrong... Uh, they, they end up with egg on their face. That, that greater research, greater archaeology, greater historical studies have started to, to validate every single thing that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke in the, in the book of Acts. So we've got uh, tremendous historical accuracy here, which is what Luke said he was trying, he was striving to achieve. And so there it is. All right, so finally point E then, the healing of Malchus is Jesus' final miracle before the cross. He's out of the miracle business at this point. And uh, he's going to go and do the work of redemption. Which gets us now to point six. The message of irony. The message of irony. And uh, this is found in all synoptic gospels. Uh, I guess we'll go back to Matthew 26 at this point. It's got the longest account. The wordiest. Matthew 26. The message of irony. Although, let's see. 
Message of irony. I-R-O-N-Y. Message of irony. When things are ironic, <laughs> when uh, when uh, a message that communicates that irony crosses the line into sarcasm, is that unbiblical? Is it sinful? Is it wrong? Or is it? Does it communicate? Is it effective? And we find actually on a number of occasions that the Lord uses employs that. Uh, rhetorical device when he says I've done many miracles for which one of them are you stoning me <laughs> right is that not uh, sarcastic is that not mocking is that not I mean if, you know if somebody else said it you might accuse them of being sinful or being uh, you know but Jesus obviously wasn't he employed it effectively he employed it in a sanctified use and here, uh, here as well, this message of irony. Now, it's, it's recorded in Matthew. I, I do want to read Matthew, and then I also want to read Luke with respect to this. This uh, wonder of wonders, as it were. Um, so, let's see. The sword in the ear in verse 51. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For uh, And we talked about this. Those who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? And so the Lord is, is not concerned about His physical safety at this moment. He's concerned about fulfilling the plan of God, which calls for His arrest. It calls for His betrayal. It calls for His death, His execution, to be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah says He was numbered with the transgressors. And so here he sees it being fulfilled. And he says, at that time, Jesus said to the crowds, have you now? Have you? And this is, this is his, the irony being stated. Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Isn't that ironic? You're coming out to me to arrest me as if I was a robber. Remarkable. He's never robbed anything. He's never stolen anything. He's never committed a sin. He's the one sinless being on the planet. And yet, this arrest warrant has been issued for him, and this, these soldiers are there, armed with swords and clubs, to arrest me as you would against a robber. How ironic. Isn't that amazing? That the forces of the adversary are being used by the Father to fulfill Scripture. Because again, prophecy says he was numbered with the transgressors. He's going to be hung between two robbers. Same vocabulary that we have here. Every day, and here's more irony, every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. You did not seize me. Why? <laughs> Why do you have 600 Roman soldiers plus an unknown number of, of temple guards plus slaves why this incredible logistical endeavor to arrest me in this garden at midnight under the cover of darkness? Okay. Why does anyone choose darkness and shy away from the light? Yeah, They love the darkness rather than the light. Their deeds are evil. Also, it's kind of remarkable, there's a certain fear that they have of public opinion. 
as far as seizing him in broad daylight, seizing him in the temple, seizing him during the holy feast. They had a fear about a possible riot if someone was to observe what they were doing. And so uh, they're, they're making decisions, taking actions, motivated partly by fear, partly by jealousy, partly by a whole assortment of things. So there's a lot of irony at work here. There's a lot of, understand irony, there's, there's, there's correlating truths that coincide in a, in a remarkable way where this is true, this also is true, and boy, that connection is a, a notable a notable thing. <laughs> okay? Isn't that something? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. So he's relaxed about it. He's, he's highlighting their activities. And, uh, and he asks, does he, does he really expect an answer to his question? No, it's rhetorical. Have you? Have you now? Is this really what you're doing? And, and it's like he, he announces it so that they've got something to think about. So the disciples have something to think about. Not really expecting an answer. So this is interesting. All right. The arresting force played out a farce. <laughs> the arresting force played out a farce. It's all just a drama. It's all just a show. That's what a farce is. You know, a farce is a, is, a, is a comedy sketch that shows how stupid something is. <laughs> okay? And arresting a, a, you know, an arrest warrant for Jesus Christ as if he was a robber is stupid. He's, he's the only sinless human to ever walk this earth. And, uh, and it's interesting... They've come out with swords and clubs to take him by force. And he was willing to go wherever they wanted to go. This is the night that he surrenders. This is the night that he'll go stand trial. Don't have to lay hands on him. Where are we going next? Let's go. He's going to do the will of his father. And yet they're there to arrest him. Okay? It's almost like the... uh, Okay, sad, sad parallel. But the... um, the, the, the final scene in the uh, Lord of the Rings, in the, in the Return of the King trilogy. Now, you had to read the book because they didn't put it in the movie. But when the hobbits returned to the Shire, they returned to their homeland, they found that everything was, was upside down. Everything, the, the, the hobbits had been enslaved, that there was uh, tyranny, and they had to, uh, they were breaking rules, and there was this. Uh, it's called The Scouring of the Shire is the, is the final chapter there. And they didn't put it in the movies. So if you didn't read the books and all you saw was the movies, then you don't know about this part. And uh, at, at one point then, you had the four hobbits, and, and, and they were on their own now at this point. The rest of the fellowship's gone. Gandalf the wizard's gone, all that. It's just the hobbits. And they get arrested. And in the process of getting arrested, they let themselves get arrested because they wanted to go talk to this to this big chief that all the other hobbits were terrified of, this big chief that was making all the rules, this big chief that had, that had uh, enslaved them. And in fact, uh, they were so fit and they were so battle-trained as a result of their travels and their experience that they were able to march 
you know, at greater speed and longer distance. They were they quickly outpaced their arresting officers, <laughs> you know, and they were in such a hurry to get to where the big chief was to be found. They and so you know they just told their arresting officers. They said, uh, you know, just catch up to us. We're going to be up here at this place, and you can catch up to us by nightfall. And they they were still under arrest, of course, while they marched on ahead of their arresting officers. So. Uh, all of that, of course, is to illustrate what am I saying here, is that they didn't need the soldiers and the swords and the clubs because this was the night. His hour had come. This was the night. We're going to see in Luke, the hour and the darkness are yours. Okay, And Jesus is submitting to the will of the Father. In any event, they're playing out this farce. And he, he rightly comments upon upon how it might seem by those that were watching. Okay? An observer might think that a dangerous robber was being apprehended. Subpoint one. An observer might think that a dangerous robber was being apprehended. You ever see uh, you know, a police car on the side of the road and they got a guy pulled over and they got a guy on the ground and they got handcuffs on him and you know, you ever wonder? You know, what kind of a dangerous uh, criminal now is being taken off the streets? And I, mean, I do. I'm curious. That's just my former line of work. And you can't help but wonder. An observer might think that a dangerous robber was being apprehended. This is reflected in the rhetorical question being asked here. Is this really what's happening? And if you think about the, the story we saw a little bit ago with Elisha and his servants... You know, if if you were looking at this episode with only earthly eyes, what would you see? But if you were looking at this with spiritual eyes, what would you see? What's what's really the spiritual dynamic? What's really happening here in the will of God? All right, so both Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three Gospels, record... um, this, and they use the same vocabulary. All three Gospels use the noun lestes. Lestes. L-E-S-T-E-S. And there's an iota subscript under that first eta. It's very unusual. Lambda eta with an iota subscript. Sigma tau eta sigma. Lestes. And uh, if you forget to put that tiny little iota subscript under the first eta, then I will mark you wrong as a, as a misspelling. In, uh, in your Greek class. Lestes. Uh, the Strong's number is 3027. 3027. And uh, it occurs 15 times in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, it's not, a, it's not a kleptos. It's not a thief. We talk about the thief on the cross, the penitent thief. There's a different word for thief. Uh, Lestes is not a thief. A Lestes is a violent robber. There's a difference between robbery and theft. There's a difference between... Uh, burglary when no one's around and no one's hurt, and armed robbery. Okay, and uh, this is what we have here. The lace dace is not uh, somebody that that sneals, uh, steals by stealth or burglars a place when no one's there. This is an armed robber. This is a violent, per- a terrorist. This is an armed insurrectionist. It's the word for pirate. If the setting is ships and sea, then the vocabulary lace dace uh, would be translated pirate. Okay, or terrorist in our modern terms. Insurrectionist is a lace dace. Fifteen uses, including the uh, crucifixion. He was hung between two lace die, okay, two 
uh, Lestes insurrectionists. That's why they were crucified. Um, they were uh, of the sort that would take up swords and, and try to murder Roman soldiers. <laughs> Hello, Peter. <laughs> okay, They were Lestes. They were Lestai in the plural. Okay. Um, so, Matthew 21, 13. We have this in the uh, message here. Let's see. Matthew 21, 13. He said to them, It is written, My house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. A lace days den. You know, the, the hideout, the base of operations, the safety uh, refuge for a bunch of violent robbers. Parallel to that is Mark eleven seventeen and Luke nineteen forty six. So we can uh, avoid looking up redundant verses today. <laughs> All right. Uh, so Matthew twenty one thirteen. Our example here in Matthew twenty six fifty five is the second use of it, where uh, he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Parallel to that is Mark fourteen forty eight and Luke twenty two fifty two. Uh, a third use, uh, these thieves on the cross, these robbers on the cross. See, there I did it. Robbers on the cross. Matthew 27, verses 38 and 44. Matthew 27, verses 38 and 44. At that time, two robbers, two lestai, were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And uh, down to verse 44. The robbers, the laced die who had been crucified with him, were also insulting him with the same words. Parallel to that is uh, Mark 15:27. Mark 15:27. Luke, by the way, has a parallel to that story, but it doesn't use the word laced uh, in the in that account. All right. So we've seen Matthew 21:13, Matthew 26:55, Matthew 27, verses 38 and 44. We don't need to turn to any of the Mark parallels because we've already seen the content that is to be found in Mark 11:17, Mark 14:48, Mark 15:27. Now here's a unique instance in Luke 10 that we can look at. Luke 10, verse 30 and 36. What do you think of when you think Luke 10? Anything? Anything? Good Samaritan. How about that? All right. And uh, Luke 10, 30 and 36. Um, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, fell among lestai, fell among robbers. These aren't just sneaky little thieves. They don't hurt their victims. These are in-your-face armed robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Leaving him half dead. Verse 36, um, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Okay. You see how ridiculous it is for our Savior to be called a lestace. You know, when he had done no, nor was, uh, he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. All right. Um, we already saw the parallel in Luke 19:46. That was covered already. Luke 22:52. We've already seen the parallel there. 
It's the arrest in the garden. Um, John 10. John 10. You find there's application for us today in a local church setting because what we have in John 10 is the shepherding principle. And because we have the shepherding principle in John 10, and since the local church is a shepherding venue, then what we see here has direct application for the church age. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. There's both terms. There's your kleptos and your lastes. Pretty sure. John 10, 1. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. And so we've got to be concerned. We've got to understand this, this flock, this congregation has protection. We have safety. We have a sheep fold. And we have to be concerned that we have a real shepherd and not a robber, not a thief. Likewise, verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. So there's the contrast. And then I am the good shepherd. And then we also have a corollary, not just with thieves and robbers, but with the hireling that uh, comes into view here when we move on to the next I am. We leave the I am the door. We get to I am the good shepherd. And uh, the corollary there is watch out for the hirelings. The hireling that's not a shepherd doesn't care about the sheep. And he flees when, when he sees the, the wolf coming. And those are John's uses of lastes. Also, John 18.40 is a use of lastes. Is that not... Uh... No, it's not parallel to one we've seen already. This is when uh, they're demanding Barabbas to be released and Christ to be crucified. They cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a lastes. Barabbas was a violent man, a, a, a robber. He has his own gruesome end that history records for us, but uh, he gets released on this night. Barabbas was a robber. They wanted the robber to be released while they crucified the Son of Glory. Finally then, the last use of it in the Scriptures is 2 Corinthians eleven twenty six, and part of what we're seeing in, the, in Paul's reluctant autobiography in his frequent travels, there are dangers from robbers. Something you've got to be on guard against as you are traveling. Dangers uh, in the city, dangers in the country, dangers uh, among robbers. So if you want more on that, we'll deal with that tonight. <laughs> All right. So this is what an observer might think. An observer might think, wow, a dangerous robber is being apprehended. Is this what you're doing? What's interesting, though, is they chose this venue so that there wouldn't be any observers. <laughs> We're playing out a drama where they're hoping there'll be no audience for the drama they're playing out. Some point two, then. The whole point was to eliminate or minimize possible observers. This is why I think it's a remarkable message of irony. The whole point was to eliminate or minimize possible observers. <laughs> That's why they didn't arrest him in the temple in broad daylight. There were too many witnesses. They were afraid of the mob. They were afraid of a revolt for the crowds thought he was a prophet. Why would they think that? <laughs> All right. 
And then uh, the one time where they said, okay, we'll risk the riot. We have to have them arrested in John chapter 7. They sent soldiers, and or they sent officers, officers of the of the, the Huperetai, the officers of the temple. And the officers uh, came back without arresting him because they said, we listened to what he had to say. No one's ever taught like him before. <laughs> and that, that drove the Pharisees even even more insane. The whole point was to eliminate or minimize possible observers. Now, if that's not a message of irony, I don't know what is. This is a, an interesting contrast. And you ask yourself, why do unbelievers do this every single day? You have friends, you have neighbors, you have co-workers, you have unbelievers you know. This is their way of life. This is their way of life. They're living a farce. They're playing out an act <laughs> because of their fallen nature in Adam, because of their conscience, because of, of their insistence upon uh, holding to what they hold to. <laughs> and they're living a lie. And their conscience knows it. And what's interesting is they're living this this farce that is the life of the unbeliever okay it's what proverbs calls the vanity of vanities the empty life but they insist on playing their role and they're not going to they're not going to step out of character the moment they do what happens <laughs> yeah all right um and yet who's their audience for this drama Besides themselves, right? And yet, they, they, they play this out. They play this out. Think about the atheist that denies there's a God, that denies there's a God, that denies there's a God, that denies they're accountable to this God. The whole point is to eliminate or minimize possible observers. But guess what? Everything they're doing is being observed. Everything they're doing is being recorded. They will answer for to the great white throne. The books will be opened and they will be judged according to their deeds. So they live their whole lives like spiritual ostriches with their heads in the sand. <laughs> Living out a farce, hostile to the will of God, in total denial, thinking that there's no witnesses. There is no God. He doesn't see what I'm doing. There's no judgment. There's no justice. I can do whatever I want to do. I'm my own God. And I find that interesting. Secondly now, point B. Daily public teaching provided plenty of arresting opportunities. Daily public teaching provided plenty of arresting opportunities. And this is uh, kind of a, an interesting commentary too on hindsight. You know, I don't know. I mean, this one message here where Jesus is just communicating this message of irony, I think there's a lot of of uh, uh, philosophical hindsight at work here, which is interesting. I don't think it's common. I don't see this a lot of other places in the Lord's ministry, but here it is. It's like, you know, he's resigned now to proceeding forward and he's looking back as a, almost as if he's an objective commentator observing what, what he's about to go through and observing what he's gone through and everything has brought him up to this step. Okay. Maybe at the time he didn't slow down to appreciate it. 
And now he's able to look back and say, oh, isn't that interesting? Okay. The things that we can observe after the fact that we didn't, you know, when we were in the thick of things going through them, we never stopped to, to think about it while it was happening. Okay. But now he's looking back and he says, you know, my daily public teaching provided plenty of these arresting opportunities. Why didn't you arrest me then? Luke 19, verses 47 and 48. We see he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. Oh, they wanted him stopped. And they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging unto every word that he said. <laughs> That's why they had to stop him. Too many people aren't listening to him. If we don't stop him, the whole world's going to follow after him. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? Then the Romans are going to come and they're going to take they're going to kill him and take away our authority. Say yes, that's what they're afraid of. Isn't that remarkable? And so why didn't they take those opportunities? Why they tried to? They couldn't. And even like I say in John seven, uh, which was six months prior, it was in the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, they actually, in spite of the risk of of, uh, of riot, they went ahead and sent the Huperetai and said, "Bring him in." And they couldn't do it either. So it's not for lack of trying. And it's, uh, but I think we also want to recognize it was because it wasn't the, the timing yet. It wasn't the will of God yet. He has to die on Passover. He is Christ. Our Passover has been crucified. He cannot die until the proper day. It's the 14th of Nisan when the, the Passover lamb is slain. The typology has to be fulfilled. So... Kind of neat the way the Father works this all out. And this ought to be, as, I, as we were studying in, in uh, our other class, the idea of what's danger anyway. Danger from rivers, dangers from roads, dangers from robbers. Are we, are we really in danger when we're in the will of God? Are we at risk of harm? Well, if we do come to harm, it's harm that He's assigned. And if He hasn't assigned any harm, then we're in no danger of any kind. Okay? We don't get stupid about it, but we, we can be confident. We can be encouraged. All right, we'll come back to this next week. Uh, Jesus is going to challenge his disciples to explain how the scriptures could be fulfilled. And he challenges them to explain how. And it's a little bit different than how he deals with the adversaries. But the, to the unbelievers, he doesn't ask them to explain anything. He just declares to them that scriptures must be fulfilled. And you and I better have a different approach to believers versus unbelievers when it comes to the Scriptures. Don't ask an unbeliever to explain Scripture to you. How are they going to do that? You tell them what they don't know. But to a disciple, particularly one that you are responsible for training, if it appears that they are maladjusted to a proper biblical understanding then uh, you've got to take action. You've got you to teach them. You've got to remedy their, their deficiency. And, and a good way to do that is force them to tell you, force them to cough up the answers. Okay? Jesus challenged his disciples to explain how the Scriptures could be fulfilled. But, he, but on the other hand, he declared to the unbelievers that the Scriptures must be fulfilled. You see the difference there? Two different approaches. 
Two different approaches. One in verse 55, one in, or 54, and one in verse 56. Two different approaches. And, and I think it's good. We better make observation of that and we can, we can uh, imitate that ourselves. So, we'll come back to that. We'll give you the rest of C, the rest of D, point seven, point eight, and we will wrap up episode 25, one week from today. Lord willing and rapture pending. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thy word is true. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.